And welcome back to the Live Wire Politics Podcast. My name is David Stanky, and first and foremost, welcome and thank you for joining us today. You know, I always get really excited when I put together a new episode, and I think today is going to be just as exciting. And if you haven't already, please like and subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple. You can also follow me on my Instagram page, at LiveWirePolitics. And today, I actually am going to cover a 20-point conservative culture guide. It's a culture guide I put together and I wanted to go through it and add some commentary where necessary. And even though it has the term conservative, I think after reading through the list, we'll come to a conclusion, hopefully, that most of these values are actually American values. And regardless of your political affiliation, you might be able to resonate with most of these values, which I think for me personally is a win. So that being said, let's get started with number one, citizenship is a journey. The Constitution is the roadmap. So we, as citizens, are actually members of a society. And with any membership, we have rights that are granted to us, but we also have duties and responsibilities. And one of the great elements of the Constitution is that it doesn't directly tell you what you need to do with your life. It provides a framework in which we can all pursue our own individual desires and dreams. If you want to be a farmer, great. If you want to code, computers. Wonderful. You want to work in property management? Good luck, but go for it. I only kid because that's my industry. But the Constitution provides you that roadmap to pursue your own interests. And the rights that we talked about earlier, those are natural rights, rights that are granted to us at birth as Americans. The sole function of government is to protect those rights. They are granted to us by our creator. They are not granted to us by government. Just wanted to make that clear. Number two, never bargain your liberty for security. Now, this has come up time and time again. It actually comes from the old Benjamin Franklin quote. And unfortunately, we have done this as Americans time and time again. We somehow thought it was acceptable during World War II that Japanese Americans would be rounded up and put into internment camps in the name of perceived safety. We thought it was okay during the Bush administration to relinquish many of our rights for the sake of the war on terror. We see it now currently, what we can and maybe can't do in the name of safety because of the coronavirus. Now, this is just a sample portion. We have many more. But we always want to know and at least have that realization that the moment we start to grant our liberties in the name of security. It's very rare that we get them back. And if we do, it's always a modified version of what we had. So that's number two. Number three, support justice in equal treatment under the law every time. This should go without saying, but we should all want to make sure that everyone who is going through the justice system is treated equally. And which also means that we as conservatives support judges who are impartial and rule to the letter of the law. We do not support advocacy on the judicial bench for one's personal ideological agenda. All right, number four, personal charity is superior to any government program. And really, this comes back to what is the proper role of government, because that really allows for us to have a much deeper conversation about how we fund certain programs, how much do we fund certain programs, or even if we need to fund certain programs. So take, for example, the National Endowment for the Arts. 
So a little over 10 years ago, if we looked at the National Endowment for the Arts Fund and what the government contributed to the NEA and what private donations contributed, and I think this is actually a good example, one of dozens and dozens that we can find. So a little over 10 years ago, the government requested about $120 million for the NEA. That very same year, private donations for the NEA exceeded $2.5 billion, which completely dwarfs what the government was asking for. And this is, again, one example among many, but private charity, private donations have a much more lasting effect because we as individuals are giving the fruits of our labor directly to a cause that we feel is important and it also goes back to what our responsibilities are as citizens. You know, we do have responsibilities to donate to organizations that are important to us. And for lack of a better phrase, we put our money where our mouth is. And we reject the idea that it is the responsibility of government to get that done. All right. Number five, human nature is predictable and morality is objective. Not too much commentary on this one. I feel it's very simple yet very wise morality is always objective regardless of the time that we're in regardless of the conditions that we're facing and human nature is predictable the same incentives that drove human behavior thousands of years ago drive human behavior today and for more examples on that i have done an episode called the cobra effect so check that out all right number six forcefully taking from one group and giving it to another is not noble. It's theft. Now, this has actually become a very important issue, especially recently, where we have somehow drifted to the conclusion that what is moral and what is noble is to take from some who have lots and give it to others who have little. It is the Robin Hood story, after all. But if we think about it, the more we do that with the idea that we're doing good by taking from those who have and giving it to those who have not, we're actually creating a system and a condition in which we're going to stifle the ability for someone to become more generous. We'll get into taxes a little bit later. All right, number seven, all life should be treasured, protected, and defended. So we as conservatives believe in the notion of the unborn child. We believe that every life at its conception has a unique biological blueprint. And we know this from biology. And that only through given a set amount of time, those conditions will lend to a unique human life. And most importantly, how we define life at its parameters is ultimately how we perceive life. And how we perceive life is how we treat life and defend life. So it extends. It's a very logically consistent worldview. And that obviously lends itself to our natural right of self-preservation and self-protection. And that sequence is illustrated in writing in the Second Amendment. Number seven, stand firm against cancel culture. Oh, boy. So this is a more contemporary issue, and it should go without saying that just because we want to stand firm against cancel culture does not mean that we are not to remain humble, admit when we're wrong, and have a genuine sincerity to try to do better as a human being. What we stand against is the notion 
that society and all of our moral ills can be canceled at a moment's notice, and somehow that will be the antidote to any of the issues that we have. And frankly, at its core, it is unforgiving. And here's a poem that I found online by Michael Ramirez, and it goes something like this. Forget cancel culture. I think it's a sham. I do not like it, Uncle Sam I am. Ignoring achievements in the name of the woke and cause more division with the fires they stoke. Take history out of context is now the new game. Not looking for justice, just someone to blame. Today it's a book, so watch out what you do. One day in the future, they may cancel you. Number nine, election integrity is a forever fight. And ladies and gentlemen, if we lose the integrity of our election systems, we lose everything. So it is the utmost important that we continue to fight all election fraud. And let me say, it takes place every election. The question is, how much? Take a minute after this podcast episode, because I know you're going to listen to the whole thing, and then jump on your favorite search engine. Type in 2020 voter fraud arrests, and then 2016 voter fraud arrests, 2012, you get the picture. It happens every election at every state. Here's an interview from six months ago with former Attorney General Bill Barr with Wolf Blitzer talking about what foreseeable fraud we could witness in the 2020 election. As far as widespread fraud, we haven't seen that since... Uh, since well, we, have, we haven't had the kind of widespread use of mail-in ballots as being proposed. We've had absentee ballots from people who request them from a specific address. Now what we're talking about is mailing them to everyone on the voter list when everyone knows those voter lists are inaccurate. So the former attorney general got a lot of flack for that comment, and a lot of folks were pointing to him saying he was being an extremist. Well, did that even happen during the 2020 election? Well, according to the Epic Times, last week in Nevada, a report came out that found that in Clark County, Nevada's largest voter constituency, they had 90,000 ballots that were returned. Those ballots were sent to the wrong addresses to people that did not request them in the first place. So that is just one example among many. That could be a whole episode in and of itself, but we've got to move on. So number 10, the nuclear family was no mistake. So this is actually in response to a pretty well-known article that was titled, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. The rebuttal from the conservative side is the nuclear family was no mistake. And we say this because not only is it an aim for society, we also know that what extends from the nuclear family creates a more robust and equitable society at large. And as a disclaimer, as always, this is an aim for society. This is what we would want to achieve. It doesn't mean that if you come from a single-parent household, you're not going to be able to succeed. It only means that there are certain conditions that create better outcomes on average. And I wanted to put this on the list because there is a rise in a growing support for cultural Marxism in this country. And and that quite often flies under the flag of so-called democratic socialism. And you can do the research on this. And one of the main components of cultural Marxism is the abolishment of the nuclear family for one of two reasons. One, if you're a Marxist, you believe that the nuclear family is actually a support system for modern-day capitalism. So the Marxists don't want to see nuclear families in existence because it also puts them in a much better opportunity to not be in poverty, which for us on the West, 
or in a conservative cultural perspective, we advocate for people to be in the best possibility to thrive in a modern economy. And the best way to do that, and it's not just Dave Stanky saying it, the best way to keep yourself out of poverty is to do these three things. Number one, get at least a high school degree. Number two, get a full-time job. Number three, get married before having children. If you do those three things, you have a 91% chance of not being in poverty. So what else can the nuclear family do for you? Well, let's hear from Larry Elder, one of my favorite syndicated columnists, attorney, host of The Larry Elder Show. It was President Barack Obama who said, we all know these statistics, that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. The Journal of Research on Adolescence confirms that even after controlling for varying levels of household income, kids in father-absent homes are more likely to end up in jail. And kids who never had a father in the house are the most likely to wind up behind bars. In 1960, 5% of America's children entered the world without a mother and father married to each other. By 1980, it was 18%. By 2000, it had risen to 33%. And 15 years later, the number reached 41%. You know, Larry Elder is one of those very rare independent thinkers who has challenged many of my beliefs. And as a result, I've changed my thinking about certain topics because I just never thought of them that way. So if you haven't heard of Larry Elder, go check him out. All right, number 11, accountability is a virtue. Scapegoating is not. And I didn't think I needed to put this one in, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized I probably do. Because too far often what we're seeing now is an alleviation of responsibility. Somehow it's always someone else's fault or the institution's fault, or the society's fault. You know, my dad once told me if I take 100% responsibility for my life, the good, the bad, the ugly, I'll never have any problems. And I apply that to my career. I try not to blame people for my mistakes. It actually creates more humility because I'm able to say I messed up, but I'm willing to fix it. And I firmly believe through my own experience that ownership and accountability are the hallmarks of creating a more virtuous society. So that's why I put that down. All right, number 12, not everything is racist. A presumption of racism without evidence is racist. I put this down and it could take an entire episode in and of itself, I'm sure. But you know, when I was growing up as a kid and you know, even into my teen years, if I heard that someone was a racist, there couldn't be a worse character description that one could have. And I feel in the last few years, it has really lost all meaning. You know, this past year, there have been multiple times where the largest teachers unions in the country have gone on record and stated that the rush to get children back in schools is rooted in white supremacy and racism. So imagine being any family in those districts, regardless of what ethnicity you have. And imagine you want to have your children back in school for a variety of different reasons. Maybe it's mental health for your child. Maybe it's because you've lost your child care services and you can't afford daycare. Maybe your job requires you to leave the household and you can't find those services to help support your family. Whatever the reason might be, imagine hearing from the teachers union that that is not a legitimate concern because of, quote, racism. 
And I'll tell you, the more teachers I talked to about this, the more they said the same thing. This only widens the education gap between the rich and the poor. Because when you're low on resources, you're also low on childcare and you're low on development. When you're high on resources, you have the means to send your children to private school, hire private tutors, etc., etc. And another disturbing trend that we're seeing is that it's this notion that all of a sudden... It's no longer someone's actions that reveal whether or not they're exhibiting racist behavior. It's actually just who they are, what identifies them with what particular group. Here's an example. A sixth grade choir teacher decided to put together an exercise with her students where she would ask her students what groups they identify with and whether or not those groups are privileged or targeted groups. So she asked all the students in her class to identify whether... They are white or people of color, whether they are male or female, whether they are Christian, Protestant, or Muslim or other, whether they are heterosexual or LGBT, whether they're U.S. born or whether they're immigrants, both documented and undocumented. And this is all obtained by the local news outlet. She then asked everyone to identify and put themselves into categories so they all could see who's in the targeted group and who's in the oppressor group. And can you just imagine falling into either one of those groups and having your sixth grade teachers say that you are in an oppressor group or you are in a targeted group and having perhaps what would have been friends all of a sudden look at each other as perceived enemies. And this is one example, there are countless others. And I do want to say that I think most people have good intentions. They're trying to do their part to create a more equitable society. But all these examples that I've seen in the past year are making all of these broad strokes of presumption of racism without any evidence. Perhaps looking at one group and making assumptions based on group identity, group think, and collectivism, which in my opinion and many others that I've spoken to is doing more harm than good. And while we've made so much progress, it seems like we're starting to go backwards. It seems that we are starting to prioritize color of skin ahead of content of character. It is looking like the antithesis of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. You know, a good friend of mine sent me a chart that was created by the National Smithsonian Institute. And the chart was an online guide entitled Talking About Race. And once I opened it, it listed the, quote, assumptions and aspects of white culture that have been normalized over time and are now considered standard practices in the United States, end quote. It goes on to say that values such as self-reliance, being polite, timeliness, hard work are products of a white dominant culture. Okay, so just for contextual purposes, the friend that sent that over to me is black. So we had a nice conversation about it. And he said, you know, David, I went on the website and I looked at all the different historical black leaders that are highlighted at the museum. People like Frederick Douglass, Jackie Robinson, Martin Luther King Jr., Condoleezza Rice, John Lewis, you name it. He said, you think those people didn't have to be self-reliant or polite or on time or work hard to get where they needed to be? And he said it's even a slap in the face to him because he exhibits many of those qualities and those characteristics, and yet he learned that from his parents. So my friend typically votes Democrat, but the more conversations we have, the more I hear him saying I identify more and more as a conservative in this day and age. 
because all this rhetoric that we see is primarily driven by the progressive left. And that's why we put together this conservative culture guide. Now, this is going to be a part one. I'm going to end the episode now. We'll have a part two that'll come out in about a week or so. So stay tuned for that. But I hope you enjoyed this. Now, the conservative culture guide I have in a slide deck, both on my Instagram page as well as livewirepolitics.org. So this week's call to action is to help support the Innocence Project. So if you remember, we as conservatives support justice and equal treatment under the law every time. And unfortunately, sometimes the sad truth of the matter is that we have imprisoned many innocent people. And this is partly due to the fact that until recently, we've lacked the technology to perform proper DNA testing that we found has exonerated many wrongfully convicted prisoners. And so the Innocence Project has done a lot of great work with restitution and providing resources for legal counsel to provide people an opportunity to regain their freedom. And again, as conservatives, we want freedom. So part two of the Conservative Culture Guide will be coming out soon. We wish everybody a wonderful week, and thanks for listening.